Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. If you like this program and you want to support it, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. This show's entirely free. All 500 and something, 500 and something episodes? More than 500 episodes. They're all free. There's an official Other People app. That's free too. Everything's free. So I count on the support of listeners to keep the thing going. If you would like to show some support, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. All right. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You looked like your head exploded to see what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person and just one. Hey, everybody, how's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. I'm very happy to have Liska Jacobs on the program today. Her debut novel is called Catalina. It is available now from uh, MCD FSG. I think I said that right. It's the new imprint from FSG. It's called MCD. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a good imprint. I feel like they're doing interesting things. They're publishing interesting books, Catalina being prominent among them. So Liska Jacobs coming up in just a moment, uh, just a few minutes. I want to talk to you first, though, about uh, the fact that we got a dog. I feel like I need to share that news. It was uh, it's a little puppy. We named her Twiggy, or my daughter named her Twiggy. And she was, uh, it was like a litter of 11 puppies. The mother is like a, just a, a street mutt from like Mexico, Baja. She had 11 puppies. 35-pound dog had 11 puppies. I think they were born in Mexico, and then the, the mother and the puppies were found. They were starving. They were uh, brought to this rescue that is in San Diego, and... I wound up uh, seeing the pictures of the litter on the internet. It was this big process. I don't know if you guys have ever rescued a dog before, or, but you know, in Los Angeles anyway, or in Southern California, puppies go really fast. It's actually competitive. And for me, uh, it was a little bit stressful because we, you know, we wanted a dog with a short coat. We wanted, like, I don't want to deal with a ton of shedding, like a little bit of shedding. Fine. It's a dog, but I don't want to have hair everywhere. And 
We also didn't want to get a huge dog, but when you're rescuing, you often don't know what the mix is. Like maybe, like in, in our case, we knew the mother was only 35 pounds. You can sort of eyeball the puppies and make a guess, but we have no idea who the father was. Like was the father a, uh, like a bull mastiff? Was it a trained killer from the streets of Mexico? I have no idea. So you're sort of rolling the dice. It's a little bit nerve wracking. And then on top of that, it's competitive for these puppies. They go up on the internet. They, they show up on these like rescue apps. I had like four of these apps going on my phone, constantly checking to see if new puppies have you know become available. And then you find one you like, or you find a litter that you like. You go to the website, you have to fill out an application. The application has to be approved. You have to do a phone interview. You wait for them to notify you when there's going to be an adoption event where this litter is going to be present. You get on a special list to have a, a, a you know, special meeting with the litter, but then you got to get there. And it, you know, like what I found having gone through a bunch of different rescues and like having visited multiple rescues, because I was very thorough about this process. I wanted to make the right decision. I wanted to get a dog that, that worked. I didn't want to get a puppy and then have to like return it or like feel like I fucked it up. Do you know what I'm saying? I wanted to come through for my, uh, my kids. <laughs> I also just didn't want to add too much chaos or headaches to our lives for the next like 12 to 15 years. So, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to feel like I would have proper evaluation. And the problem with these rescues is that they're usually driven by volunteers. Like it's all volunteers. They show up on weekends, bless them. And they try to help these dogs find homes, but they don't really know a lot about the dogs. They can't really tell you with any confidence what kind of temperament, you know, nothing like that. And then on top of that, it's usually like, you know, they set up these kennels. They're stacked on top of one another. They're packed with dogs. All the dogs are barking. It's loud. And you're trying to make evaluations and decisions that are going to affect the next like 12 to 15 years of your life. So uh, I, uh, I said to, uh, I said to myself, you know, with regard to this litter down in San Diego, like I got to get there early. I got to have time. I got to get first in line. I want to make sure that I have at least a moment to evaluate the full litter and make a pick, try to find a dog that's, you know, a puppy that seems calm because that's what, that's what we wanted. We wanted a puppy, but like the calmest possible puppy, sweet, gentle, not super hyper. So I got up at like five in the morning on Saturday, drove down there, was the first person there by a pretty good margin, though there were other people who had a similar idea. And that's what I mean by competitive. Like everyone sort of wants their little puppy and they've fallen in love with a certain like member of the litter. And so the person who was second in line, it was a family were standing there like, you know, just outside of the adoption tent, like holding our place in line. And the woman's like, which one do you want? And I was like, well, I don't know. She's like, well, we want this one. And it had like Doberman ish coloring, like markings. And I was like, okay, well, I can't promise you that I'm not going to pick it. Like I, I didn't say that, but you could just sense that she's like, if you pick it, I'll claw your eyes out. That's our dog. It was that kind of thing. So I got first. And then, uh, you know, once they open up the event, I go in and like everyone just starts crowding around this litter of puppies. They're in kind of this like wire pen, you know, all playing with one another and jumping over one another. And if you can imagine it, it is encircled by uh, humans, mostly adults, Everyone's looking down at these puppies. Everyone's asking to hold them. And I've got this ticket. It says number one, but that doesn't really mean much. And the woman next to me, who is like the foster mom for these puppies, 
I'm like, well, which, which ones are, do you think have the best temperament out of the females? And she sort of like shrugged and was like, I think the brown ones, you know, the two caramel girls. And then I'm holding different puppies, you know, like there's five, I think there were six females and five males. So I'm holding six different females and the foster mother, like this woman who had fostered these puppies, she, she sort of leans in and she's like, just so you know, you're like, I know you're number one in line, but like, it's really a free for all. <laughs> like if you don't pick in the next five minutes, it's just, they're just going to start going. So now the clock is ticking and I'm like, oh shit, I got to make a decision. This is it. This is the moment of truth. Am I going to get this puppy? Which one am I going to pick? Which one is the right one? And I, I held, you know, the puppies, I held some of them twice. There was a black and white one that I really loved and I held it and I looked it in the eye and I was like, are you the one? And then I picked up this little caramel girl who was sort of the runt of the litter, if not the runt, then close to the runt, but very sweet and just very still and calm, looked me in the eye. And I looked at the woman and I was like, I'll take this one. And that was it. And uh, next thing I know, I'm like filling out some more paperwork and I'm uh, paying, you know, you make a donation or whatever to the rescue. And then they give me the puppy and they scan the microchip in the puppy and I'm getting my picture taken next to a sign. And then I'm in my car and I've got this puppy in my lap and I go home, I'm texting my wife, I'm taking like selfies as I'm driving. And I'm like, you know, you got to get the kids, get the kids ready. You know, we got to film this. And then I arrive at home, uh, put the puppy on the porch, ring the doorbell. We're filming that whole thing. And it was actually very sweet, like watching my daughter's face. Like she was shocked and almost started crying, like not even because, you know, she wasn't sad, but she was just like surprised. She didn't cry, but she almost did. And then my son, uh, River, like hugged the dog. We have this video that's just crushing. He hugged it and uh, put his head down on it and was like, I'm going to go night-night on the dog. You know, it's hard to describe, but it was very cute. So it was a good moment, and now we have a dog, and her name is Twiggy. My daughter selected it. That was a whole process that I kind of micromanaged. But naming animals, naming anything, to me, is a very big responsibility. My daughter's only seven, so we had to manage that situation. We let her pick the name, but we basically did like a long list of names, and then my wife and I created a short list, and then from that short list, she got to pick. So she got to pick, but we just made sure that we called it. We called the list so that there would not be any names in there that I would spend the next like 12, 15 years of my life regretting having to say, you know, multiple times a day. So the dog is named Twiggy. My daughter wanted to name the dog like Peyton or Skylar, <laughs> which I think are like the names of characters on uh, Disney shows. See, this is why you micromanage the naming process because, you know, nothing against the name Peyton or Skylar, but that's not the name of this dog. It doesn't fit the dog. When I hear those names, I'm thinking of like, uh, you know, a sorority girl or something getting sick at like a, a party. Someone's holding her ponytail. Do you know what I'm saying? Or holding her hair back. That's all I can think of. But uh, it wasn't the right fit is what I'm trying to say. It wasn't right for the dog. But uh, as a, a kind of compromise, the dog is officially named uh, Twiggy Peyton Listy. And that's that. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns 
depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Liska Jacobs. Her debut novel, Catalina, is available now from MCDFSG. It was a delight talking with her. She was just over here yesterday, and I'm very pleased to get to share this with you. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Liska Jacobs. It's interesting. I've, I've had a few different people that have been surprised that there is an island right off the coast of Los Angeles, um, right on in the Santa Monica Bay. It's technically part of the Channel Islands, but it's the only one where it's, uh, I guess, inhabitable. Like there are a huge tourist trade there, lots of hotels. How many people live out there? Not a lot. I think maybe, I think full time, there's like a thousand, less than a thousand people that live there. A lot of people commute, actually, which is really interesting for days at a time to go work their jobs and then they live over here. I've I've, I've lived in Los Angeles for 20 years. I've never been there. Really? Isn't that weird? It's a really weird place. It's a very bizarre place, um, mostly because there's sort of two sides to it. This is why I set the book there. Um, there is Avalon, which is the touristy side where, you know, it's it's very postcard, California, Mediterranean. You know, it's it's very... Um, Even the name seems kind of creepy. Avalon. Avalon, right? Because it, yeah. it, it sort of uh, evokes this sort of perfection or something. Yes, yeah. Well, and it's, and it's, it's very artificial, right? It's been built to be this playground right this little tourist destination um and then the other side of it is two harbors and there's probably i don't know maybe 50 people live over there there's one bar um that's all you need yeah that's all you need right yeah um and if if you go and camp there bison will come down into the campsite there's like catalina island foxes which are the size of cats there's eagles i mean it's a very wild terrain it's very much exactly how it was probably 200 years ago um, which, and I, which you really can't say for just about any place else in California, no, right? Yeah, and that's but that's why I liked Catalina because I feel like Southern California and Los Angeles, especially, has that sort of duality, right? There is Hollywood and this artificial postcard version of Los Angeles, but then you have the Santa Monica Mountains right there, or you have the National Forest. So I wanted to even Griffith Park. It's got uh, right? the it's got the mountain lion. Yeah, I saw a coyote there two days ago. Did you? Yeah, brought like eleven o'clock in the morning. He came out, looked at us, was like. Whatever. Walk, trotted away. You don't have a, a small dog for me to eat. So. <laughs> yeah, he was very bored. He kind of looked us over like, are you hiding one? Yeah, nah, I'm out of here. <laughs> they can be sort of brazen sometimes. They can. Huh? Have you? Do you have problems with them here? Um, like you see signs like in the neighborhood yeah. where there'll be someone like, a coyote ate my cat. And, you see, know. isn't that crazy? All the way in Larchmont, which is pretty, you know, central. We're not uh, super close to the mountains, but they come down here. Yeah. It's very, you don't get that in New York. No. Right? Well, I mean, you get, what is it? They have the uh, hawk. Falcons? That, yeah, those. Yeah, the falcons right, that live there. Yeah, but, and which maybe is pretty cool. In Central Park, I don't know what the wildlife situation is there. If They, they have, have a zoo. They have a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> But like in terms of wild animals, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, they don't have coyotes. No, or mountain lions. Or mountain lions. Mm-mm. 
Yeah. So there is like, there is this weird collision of, uh, nature and then artificiality. Like this place yeah. really shouldn't be here. Yes. We're piping in all this water and we're piping in the dream too. Right. It's on top of that. Right. You know? so it's not just a city. It's many, it's a place where we manufacture fantasy and yeah, right? it advertises itself to the world. Yeah. And, and it, then Catalina, wanted these characters who were sort of all from here in Southern California that have, have this artificiality about them. But there's of course a deeper, something darker underneath and what happens when you put those two things in conflict. Right. So, well, it makes me think too of, uh, did you see this news about Robert Wagner now being a person of interest in the Nettles? I did. Yes. Cause yeah. that, that story has always been, I've always, you know, I've always associated it with Catalina Island. Yeah. I can't think of Natalie Wood and Robert yeah. Wagner and Christopher Walken. Right. And, you know, in one of the coves out there on one of the sailboats. Yeah. yeah. It's a very, and that's what I, I think that's the perfect, way to look at Catalina, right? It's this perfect, beautiful place where someone can die. Yeah. Right. Was That's... that in your head when you were conceiving of this? I, you know, I don't think so. Not really. Or Not maybe until... like buried in your subconscious. Somewhere? Probably buried in my subconscious. Cause you know, when you're born and raised here, these, those kind of stories linger in the back of your mind. I think that's part of the, um, I guess where the noir comes from too, right? The Black well, Dahlia, stuff like that. I was, yeah. like, was going to say Black Dahlia. There was like, wasn't there like a strangler, like somebody who would crawl the in your hillside window? strangler. Was that guy in in the eighties in LA? Yeah, I think so. I think that was the eighties. And Manson. Manson in Simi Valley. Yeah. That's, that's a huge one. I mean, and they capture not just our imagination, but the I think the entire country, right? It inhabits a huge part of our our self, like subconscious. Yeah, well, because I think this place tries to represent itself as perfection, good, perfect mm -hmm. weather, beautiful mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. So when something like that goes on, it's like that much more striking and yeah, yeah, media friendly. And then mm -hmm. also you're just living in a media capital that can perpet you know oh, perpetuate yeah. those stories. And, yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. So you, you did research, you went over there and camped. Yeah. My, um, editor likes to joke that I'm a method writer. So every time I, um, I'm writing a second book too for MCD. Uh, and the first book I, I thought I want to set it somewhere that I can go and, and do research and stuff like that. But of course I was just a poor college student. So, um, I could afford going to Catalina and luckily it worked out for the book. So yeah, that's where yeah. I went and I went over there a few different times and camped and did both sides of the Island. And, um, how do you camp? Like you just show up and then you hike over the mountain and find a place no, or you, you can drive, take, you can take the boat. So the boat, um, over can either drop you off in Avalon or you stay on and it'll drop you off in two harbors. And then you so. go up from two harbors and just, yeah, you just camp right. You can camp right. I mean, the boat drops you off and it's like maybe a 10 minute walk to the campsite with all your gear. Okay. You can also rent all your camping gear there. Really but then somebody else has used it. Like, That's true, yeah. Who knows what went on yeah, in that Yeah, it's in that really tent. beautiful in Two Harbors, though. It's wonderful. And one of the coolest things about Catalina is they have their own sort of unofficial cocktail, I guess. What's it called? Called uh, Buffalo Milk. And you can't get it here, which is the weirdest thing because we're not that far away from Catalina. Like, if you were to walk into a bar and say, can I have a Buffalo Milk? They'd be like, what are you talking about? My wife uh, my wife calls white wine with ice cubes a Marina Del Rey. <laughs> Or Newport Beach. Yeah, right. <laughs> Same thing. Same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um uh so it has no buffalo milk in it, of course, but it's mostly vodka. Um there's some nutmeg. It's blended with um actually I don't want to tell you. I don't want to ruin the secret. I, I want Is everyone it something to go disgusting? to Catalina. No, it's delicious. Oh, okay, good. And it's very easy drinking. Okay. Um it's a little bit frightening how easy it, it goes down. You're like I've had um, fourteen of these. Yeah, you finish one after a long day hiking or swimming or 
you know, kayaking, you drink one down and you're like, I'll have another one. And then as you're drinking that one, the first one hits and you're like, wait, these all had alcohol in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a boozy, um, smoothie or shake or Perfect. something. It's very nice. And yeah. you can kayak and do all that kind of stuff. Yeah. They have kayaking gear. They have snorkeling gear to rent. This sounds good. It's wonderful. Maybe I should go. You really should. And then the sea life out there is incredible. You can see our state fish. Which is the Garibaldi. I should know that. Right. What's a Garibaldi? I don't even know I what think that I is. Said it. Yeah. It's the, he's a beautiful orange fish. I did not know that. I didn't yeah. even know. I guess it makes sense that we would have a state fish. But <laughs> how big is this thing? He's, I don't know, like medium, small. Like They're a, really gorgeous. Like a They're large not, potato? Kind like, of? A, like a small football. A small, <laughs> large <laughs> potato or a small football. <laughs> One of the two. Yeah. Wow. And then dolphins. Dolphins, of course. Yeah. yeah. Sea lions. Lots of sea lions. Those things can be, I've, I, I, the, the internet keeps giving me stories of sea lions like attacking people. Yeah, they get a little bit rowdy, especially during spring when they're trying to. And well, they're on the beach, or like they, you know, they're not exactly fast of foot or whatever. Yeah. You know, well, they, the coves. The nice thing about two harbors is that they're all coves, so they're protected, and the sea lions don't really come into them. So it's mostly just, um, you know, the kind of stuff you see when you're snorkeling. Okay. Um, which is really nice, stingrays, stuff like that. Did you? Uh, so you're camping. You're you're uh, you're just kind of there to soak up the vibe. Yeah. Or is there something in particular that you were there to see or person um, you were there to interview or something? Or was it more just like a general, like, I need to get a feel? I need to get a feel. And fu- and funny enough, when you do that, um, things happen that sort of play into the world you're already creating, which is really nice. Um, and then they, you know, they, they end up in the book, which is, I, I find that if you open yourself up to whatever world you're writing in, um, things happen uh, that sort of help you along like create the story i have and i had you know i've had uh different conversations with people over the years about the importance of field research it's very important i will say okay so i'm i've heard two different things i've heard i've had people who like have set like award-winning books in africa never set foot in africa Mm. and i'm like wow and then i'm like how did you do that And they're like i just went on google and looked at pictures that's totally doable it's doable I, i i think it depends i mean i I hadn't been to New York in a, a decade and a half, and part of the book takes place in New York, and I was able to just, you know, use Google Maps, make sure some things were still the same. Uh, but I find there's some stuff that makes it easier for me to transport myself there. Um, and, and plus, like, just the fun of going on a trip. Oh, yeah, totally. As part of the creative process, like, right? get out into the world, like, live a little. Like, don't, yeah. it's great to sit down and, and, you know, sit in front of the keyboard and do your work, but if you're going to set something somewhere, like, go travel, live yeah, a little. Yeah, definitely. And, and I feel like, you know, if I you can, somebody definitely, that's the other thing, right? Like, I could, I could only afford going to Catalina. Right. <laughs> you know, what does it cost to get, what does it cost to get from Los Angeles to Catalina? What's it, um, what's it running these like days? $60 round trip, I think. It's a little, it's a little steep, but, um, on a you boat. can go on for free on your birthday actually. No shit. Yeah. So you just register on the website. You get seasick? Um, no, not really. It's no. not bumpy out there? No, it? no, it's not too bad. Um, they used to, the boats are better than they were like 20 years ago. Cause that's what I always think. I think that's my hold up. Is like, am I just going to get barfy on this? No, boat? there's one, it's like the Catalina Island Express and it just, I mean, it, it charges across the bay. You're there in like an hour and a half. Oh. It's not bad at all. And oh. the thing too, that it, like the thing, the, the lure of Catalina, like even just as like a symbol out there on the water, cause I've yeah. looked at it a million times right? is that you're in this really crowded, like, like giant megalopolis, Yes, millions and millions of people. You're constantly yeah. navigating this crush of humanity. And yet an hour and a half across the bay, 
is this basically, you know, basically perfectly preserved island. Yeah. That's no different than it was 200 years ago. That's sparsely populated mm -hmm. and like riddled with wildlife. Yeah. And, and how, I've never been there. <laughs> and isn't it funny to be here though, and to be stuck in this place and every once in a while you catch a glimpse of it out there, either it's in, you know, from the smog or the, the way the during sunset, you can see it and you, yeah. just, and you know, it's there and there's something comforting. And I, I feel like I always tell myself, I'll go there next weekend or next month I'll plan a trip and a year will go by and, I'm, and I'll realize it's just because I see it out there and I'm like, oh, I feel comforted that it's there. I don't really have to go and experience it again because, you know, I wrote a book that takes place there. Yeah, you're like, I've, <laughs> I know I've what it's been like. there, done that. <laughs> have you done a reading on Catalina? Do they have I you? haven't. And actually, they, I met some librarians that were so excited that I, I wrote a book that takes place there. Um, because they don't have any literature, I guess that, that takes place on, well, the now island, they do. which is surprising. You, but that's the other thing as like, what a, what a shrewd move as an author. Like <laughs> if you want to own a place territorially as a creative person, <laughs> try writing a novel about a place that literally has no literature about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> no yes. competition it at was all. Very calculated on that, on that front. <laughs> You're like Ross McDonald never did. Or what are the LA writers? It's like the famous noir writers. Uh, oh, well, Ray, Raymond Chandler. Yes. And, you know, yeah. They never went out to Catalina. No. Right. Well, no. They, yeah, they Which didn't. is funny because it was, it was very popular place in the fifties and forties, um, for the sort of jet set they'd go there. There's a giant, what they call the casino. They had jazz shows and stuff like that. Um, did you learn this stuff as a function of your research, like yeah. the history of the place? Yeah. yeah when, when did it first sort of open its doors? Like what's the, do you know the origin story of it in terms of, of Catalina? Yeah. As a, as a place that's like, you know, a, a kind of an extension of LA and the, the basin or whatever. I don't, I do know originally it was owned by, um, I think the Wrigley Wrigley's. brothers. That's right. Wrigley's, right? Uh, and it was sort of a private island and then they... They used to have spring training out there used, yes. for like the Cubs. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. See, I read that and once. They, and they did a lot of filming there, which is how they ended up with the bison out there. Um, they flew over bison to film scenes for a film that I can't remember the title of now. And then they just left them there. So there's just like buffaloes? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I got to do this. Yeah. It's really kind of a wild place, which is another... You know how we have the parakeets out here now, which yeah. aren't natural for here. And recently we started getting more peacocks in Pasadena also. So, By the way, Pasadena is beautiful. It's gorgeous. What's, it's the, gorgeous. what's the name of the big garden? I'm blanking on the name. The Huntington. Huntington Garden is, I just went there for the first time. Really? But pathetic. And I'm like, this is maybe like top three place in LA that I've ever been. Yes. I it's love gorgeous, it. It's gorgeous, isn't it? Oh it's my God. It's a beautiful, beautiful. Um, if you go into the Huntington on the right day and you start looking for houses to buy in Pasadena, yep. you're like, well, and there's I all these beautiful there. old houses mm -hmm. and it's sort of, there's a old money, old California money. Over right. There. And there's like an article in the paper recently about how it's becoming like sort of chic, like Pasadena. People are moving out there. I know every time my husband and I, we will move somewhere that's sort of on the fringe of, and then it gets co-opted and, co and we get pushed out. Where are you going to get yeah, pretty soon? You're just gonna be like, I'm in Nevada. I have yep, no yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how this happened. I'm but in Mojave. You guys want to go to the beach? It's going to take a while. <laughs> we can go tomorrow. Pack up tonight. Yeah. yeah. Well, but I mean, you know, hopefully there's a little bit of time. It's just, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to, f to figure What's going to happen? Like at some point, people are going to have to move out or how do you, like, you can't just keep growing. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I recently have had to make peace with it. Los Angeles becoming an international city, That it's, it's not the city that I grew up with. It's not, it's not the, you know, it, it's, it's, it was always, I think a place where people came to visit, but it wasn't a place where you would go hiking and hear other people on the trail speaking different languages. Really? Um, yeah, we went hiking yesterday in the Santa Monica Mountains, and we heard German, we heard French. Um, 
so it, it's just become a place where kind of it's, it's sort of a, and I think people are living here from other countries too. It's not like they're just coming here on vacation. No, oh, yeah. Um, I was reading some Eve Babbitts. Do you know her? Are you yeah. familiar with her? I mean, I don't know her. I don't know her personally, but no, I'm familiar I know, with no one does, right? She's a, a recluse now, but. Um, I was reading an interview with her after the ra- they reissued Sex and Rage, and she was saying that she also had to make peace with uh, Los Angeles being an, in- an international city. And I thought, well, if she has to do it, I guess I have to do it, yeah, too. Right. It's sort of her town first. So yeah, <laughs> if she, she can do it, I can also make peace with it. She's a babe, and she's somewhere around here? Why not? I should she's track her down. She's in Hollywood, yes. But she won't talk to anybody? No, I don't think so. I think she's, I think, um, well, you know her story, right? It's yeah, kind give of a it to fantastic me. story. She, um... You know, she was that original L.A. woman, right? That's the Doors song, right? She was one of his lover. Um, she was sort of all over the place in the 70s and 60s. and The right, Marcel right, Duchamp. The Marcel Duchamp yeah. picture. Um, where she's playing chess nude. Right. And she wrote a I love how I remember books. that. I was like, yeah, I remember yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what she's famous for. She was really... She also did some um, album covers. She painted some album covers, too. Um, and then in the nineties, she had like a freak accident where she was smoking a cigarette, leaving a party and it caught her skirt on fire Oh shit! And whatever, um, material the skirt was made out of. It just went up Oh god! and she burned, I think more than half her body Oh god! and they had to do some fundraising at the Chateau Marmont to raise funds for her surgeries. I, I think she like, it was really scary. I, I, she was an ICU and, and now she stopped writing and doesn't see anybody. Oh, did yeah. it affect her, her appearance, like her facial? I think so, yeah. See, that's like tough, especially for somebody. I mean, it's, it'd be tough for anybody, but especially somebody who's sort of known for their good looks. And, oh, yeah. You know. If you read her writing, especially now that it's being reissued, a lot of her, her essays, especially this, there's a new one coming out from Counterpoint called Black Swans, and all the essays in there are still, she's in her 50s, but she's very much assured of her beautiful skin and her her looks and knowing what, you know, we know now that, Five years later, after that book comes out, she's burned. It's oh. really kind of tragic. Yeah. Well, and, and like, what do you make of it? Because we talk about the surface beauty of Los Angeles, and you grew up here, so mm-hmm. it's always it's always been there. You know, you've always been navigating it. And uh, there's the weather, and there's the beautiful mountains, and the ocean. And, and beautiful people. And then the beautiful people. Yeah. And it is really, like, because it's something that, uh, you know, I don't leave here that often. Mm-hmm. I'm in LA or Southern California pretty much all the time. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't get out into nature as much as I should, except for like hiking up in the mountains, you know, the canyons yeah. right here, which, which isn't nothing. No, no, not at all. But it's not the same as like being out in the sticks. Yes. And, uh, like you just be on a hike and you'll like five of the most beautiful people you've ever seen. Like, yeah. that, like they would be like anywhere in the world. They'd be like, those are the most genetically perfect people you'd ever <laughs> see. And they just walk past you. Yeah. you know, they're at the grocery store yeah. and you're just like, what the, and, and like, then 15 minutes, five more beautiful people. Walk uh, just, by and you're just, like, what? <laughs> yeah. There's, there's so many of them. And, yeah. uh, I guess like, what does that do to you? You know, Catalina is a lot, uh, has a lot to do with beauty also, because I think, um, I used to work at the Getty center and, uh, I worked there for five years and I have this strange relationship with beauty because working in a museum that's all you deal with, right? You're working in a beautiful place, but then you're also working with art, right? Uh-huh. Um, and it creates a sort of isolation between you and whatever it is you're looking at, right? So the beautiful object is essentially alone all the time, right? So I think any any woman, man, um, who feels the pressure that it, you know that we have here to be beautiful, also it feels a tremendous amount of loneliness too. I, but I think uh, okay. I get that. But I think like if you are one of these, like, uh, 
who I was just at a party yesterday for the Super Bowl, and I was talking to uh, we were talking about Jessica Beale. It was mm. because Justin Timberlake was like the halftime show. <laughs> yeah, and I I saw her once, and I was like, wow, like she yeah. is like got a glow. Like it was sort of like like I didn't know what the, I I kind of froze and was like, she's freakishly beautiful in a town of freakishly beautiful people. Like, mm-hmm. but like I was like. And then we were talking about Tom Brady too, who's also freakishly beautiful. And I was like, I was like, Justin Timberlake is known as like a kind of a sexy guy and like good looking guy, charismatic, great dancer. You put him next to Tom Brady and like, he's like trash. Yeah. but Because Tom Brady's like this, that was kind of the joke. It's like Tom Brady's good looks are so powerful that like even Justin Timberlake (laughs) is ugly when you put him next to him. And then we were talking about Jessica Biel and uh how beautiful she is and like someone was like either quoting an interview or had heard a story from a friend of a friend where like she has a hard time getting roles because of how gorgeous she is, of how gorgeous she is. Yeah. people are like no one's gonna believe that you're like a normal mom from the suburbs in this movie because like you're just too <laughs> too crazy too beautiful attractive you're too symmetrical it's freaking everybody <laughs> out and i was like she can really only play like the alien but see yeah. that's what i mean that's isolation right there yeah right? yeah so it's, that it's a very strange I think a uh, thing that doesn't happen maybe in other cities, right? Because also there's a competition here too with it um, uh-huh. and the levels. Uh, maybe there's more at stake also, right? I mean, for well, power her, and money yeah, and power and money. Yeah. Well, and it's like people who are that gorgeous and then you add fame to it, which, mm-hmm. you know, is a very weird thing. It's, I, I always, I always refer to it as like its own entity. Mm-hmm. So like if you're in the room with Jessica Beale, or if you're at like, you know, the grocery store and she's there, her fame is there too. It's like this invisible entity, totally. but it's separate from her. Yes. And it's sort of, but it's also between the two of you. Mm-hmm. And so you have to sort of like try to like cut through that. And I would imagine that for somebody like her, even if she weren't famous because of her beauty, like what does the world reflect back at you when you have that? Yeah. And you walk into a store. I mean, I'm, I'm sure a lot of it is pleasant because people like to be around you. They're smiling, like guys yes. are fawning over yeah. you. But like, I, do people treat you like a human being or do they yeah. treat you with like kid gloves or do they, or do they shy away from you because they're just like, Ugh. cause that was my reaction. Yeah. Right. I was yeah. like, you're so I'm hot. Gonna, I'm going to go gonna hide. I'm going to pretend I don't see you. <laughs> yeah. I'm a normal person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. And then the, the irony too, like to go back to the grocery store uh, example is that when you're in LA and I'm sure you've had this happen hundreds of times, you see somebody that you recognize and you're trying to be courteous. And so you, you sort of begin, and it's often an actor. Yes. But what it does, ironically, is it causes you to then start performing <laughs> in the yeah. role of somebody who doesn't recognize Jessica <laughs> Beale. Like, I have no idea who you are. I'm just going to squeeze this cantaloupe, like, no, yeah, you know, not to right? be Freudian, but like... <laughs> I'm just going to stand here and massage this cantaloupe and not like understand who you are. I don't see you. Yeah. Yeah, Right. I've done that. Like like Leonardo DiCaprio. I won't like one time I saw him and was like, I don't know. It was just so bizarre. I I want to just be like, okay, dude, hi, but you can't. Well, I, I grew up in sort of the film industry also. Um, my father's a sound editor. His father was a sound editor. And, um, so we're, and then his father also was a director. So I've, been sort of on like the post-production side of the film world like what kind of like what, what kind of movies or shows do they work on anything oh we would know my gosh yeah so um he's worked on anything from his first thing he was working on was 21 jump street oh wow um and then he did a lot of um robert rodriguez movies sure um and let's see uh, he's worked on like 200 films oh okay also, so like go a lot, through a every one of, of them let's start at the beginning <laughs> <laughs> bust out a lot, the list a lot of stuff um and 
I so I grew up on backlots out here. Oh, okay. Um, but still, even even then, as a child, you you feel their fame. What you're talking about, which is when you see an actor, there's something about their just vibe that they give off that you know. Oh, you're someone important, and I'm going to pretend, you know, that I don't know that you're Antonio Banderas. You know, like, and even though I'm 12 years old and I know who he is, right? You know, I'm on a set, and there he is. Yeah. Um. There's just a different. I don't know vibe out here about that kind of stuff. And I wonder, you know, it's funny because if, you know, we, we were in a, a coffee shop the other day and Mandy Moore walked in and nobody batted an eye. Nobody was like, everyone was just like casual, cool. And I thought if we were in Iowa or somewhere in Minnesota and would everyone have the same reaction or is that just a purely Los Angeles thing where we, all of us lesser Angelinos who are not actors, um, know then no better than to turn around and be like, oh my God, Mandy Moore. You see, know? I kind of, yeah. And I, I think there is, it's, it's built into the thing here where you just have to sort of, you see, because it happens enough that like, A, a you don't want to keep doing that. Yes. And B, it's like impolite, especially in a restaurant or something yeah. to start like being like, can I get a selfie? Like, I don't yeah. understand. Or, or an autograph. Like, I can't do that. Like, I would never do that. But no, I God. think that there is a part, I mean, that these people who are famous, they went into it because they want to be recognized. Yeah. So I think that part of them probably loves being in Iowa and having some like really cheerful like person be like, oh my God, I love true. you, you know? Yeah. And like out here, true. everyone's like, got to be, you sort of have to be like too cool for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I also, you know, I just, I cannot, as an adult, I can't go up to people and be like, oh my God. <laughs> Can I have your autograph? No. no I... This morning though, I should say, uh, I was going for a walk and uh, I had my little puppy, Twiggy Aww. and uh, Michael Rapaport. Yes. who I see for some reason, like everywhere. He was <laughs> like, live around here. He was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. And he like, he's like, can I hold her? And I was like, yeah. And then I like, I thought afterwards, I was like, I should have gotten the picture. I should have been like, dude, can I take a picture of you with my puppy? <laughs> yes. Like I'm not going to be perfect. in it, but uh, for her scrapbook, I, she needs to know that Michael Rappaport, like, she's was, got her own Instagram yeah, this right. is for that <laughs> Twiggy, but he was like, so into <laughs> it. He's like, Oh, Twitty. she's so beautiful. Oh, he's like Aww. the nicest guy. Aww. That's my Michael Rappaport impre- uh, impersonation, by the way. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And I think that, uh, there's something that, you know, it happens, I guess, if you're not from here, when you come here to live relatively soon after you get here or even to visit, um, there's a, I always call it like the demystification it happened yeah. to me the first time I ever went to like the walk of fame and like man's Chinese theater. God, how disappointing. I was just like, what you? a pit this I know. is. Every time I had friends come to visit me, then they'd be like, I know where I want to go. And I'd be like, please don't make me take you there. Yeah. And then I would, and I would watch, I, cause I have to watch their disappointment. You just watch right? the dream. Yeah. And, just watch it crush. Yeah. Just completely. Because like some guy in a bad Spider-Man costume, <laughs> like comes up and like tries to get into a photo. Would you like photo. to buy a, like a $5 plastic version of the Academy Award with yeah. your name on it? You know, it's so, it's very disappointing except for Moose and Franks. I will say that. Moose, yeah. There are little, there are little there's, spots. There's pockets in, in there, you know. <laughs> yeah. But Hollywood's, you know, it's just, it's a bizarre place. And I, I guess you come here in, uh, it's very loaded. And I was thinking too, like another thought that crossed my mind the other day is how powerful it is to see yourself. Oh, you know what it was? It was my last guest when I was talking to uh, Debbie Graber, who was raised in uh, the I Chicago. Love She's yeah. lovely. Yeah, she is, right? <laughs> yeah. The Chicago suburb that uh, that John Hughes filmed a lot of his movies in. It was yeah. like the, the, you know, that whole um, milieu. And that's where she's from. And I thought to myself, like, Holy shit. Like, think about how powerful that would be to be an adolescent and to see yourself reflected in like the hottest movie for young people in the world. Yeah. And it's your neighborhood. <laughs> like, I, cause I, I guess I sort of take it for granted as like a white bro from the Midwest and 
you know, but just having you constantly kind of sort of see yourself reflected on the screen, Yeah. but to actually have it be your neighborhood where you're from and to have that be the representative, like yeah, neighborhood. That, and did she say that he nailed it too? Cause very rarely do you have people. I mean, kind of, we, we were also sort of critical cause I think some of the humor has not aged well in those films. Yeah. You know, it can get yeah. a little racist and you know, oh, I mean, it's Sexist. a movie. Yeah. There's it, not a lot of, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, movies, you know, it's they, very type, you know, like there's very typecast, you know, but there's something nostalgic about that in a weird way now, I guess too, where we live in such a tire fire time that you know i'll take anything at this point something with I'll like take a john hughes film yeah like you know, you, did, no it, chris columbus did adventures in babysitting that's what i'm thinking of yeah it's <laughs> a good one so weird there's uh the girl who used to cut my hair her boyfriend at the time i think they broke up but he was like the brother in that movie oh really and his grandfather god i'm gonna forget who the actor was but with like the original child actor in Hollywood back yeah, like, bef yeah. like before the talkies or something, yeah. there's all these weird lineages. Uh -huh. And then the girl who cut my hair, she was the granddaughter of Swifty Lazar. Oh my God. Yeah. See, that's, and that's Hollywood like, for you. Yeah. Right. She was like, you know, you so see, you just have, you'd be like, what are you doing cutting hair? Like, why don't you, don't you, shouldn't you live in a palace? <laughs> Didn't Swifty like leave you like a kingdom or yeah, something? <laughs> I, I, so I used to do the events at the last bookstore and I did an event for Artie Shaw's son. And I can't remember his name now. Um, one of his sons. Um, and uh, while I was hosting the event for him, you know, setting up the chairs and introducing him, I wanted to be like, my great grandma dated your <laughs> great, your, your father. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that means nothing now, right. you know, but like we all have these sort of weird, you live here long enough, you live yeah, here you long live enough, here long enough and, and it happens. Like I had a, one of my friends, like she's like, yeah, my grandma slept with Jim Morrison. Oh Yeah. And I'm, oh. I feel like who, whose grandma didn't sleep Actually, with Jim Morrison at this point. I was going to say, everyone's grandma slept with Jim Morrison. That's one of the things about Los Angeles that people who don't live here don't realize. We're all the one degree of way from Jim Morrison. Um, but yeah, no. And uh, you were working, like you said it earlier, you were working at the Getty. I was, yeah. Which like visually, I want people to get a sense of uh, it because it's, uh, it's got some great little real estate. It's unique. It's beautiful. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's perched up off the 405 and it's sort of overlooking most of West Los Angeles. I think on a clear day, you can see downtown also. Um, so you can see all, probably all of LA. You can see Catalina too. Um, and it's this beautiful, it's made out of travertine. Um, it's Richard Meyer built it. Interesting. Actually, not a lot of people know this, but that he built a bachelor pad on the site because he wanted to live on site while they were building the museum. Oh, so wow. there's this little mid-century sort of a apartment home, I guess, down on the hillside you can't see from the museum. And there's a pool that's on that. It's sort of he built it so that you can swim in on outside and then swim into a tunnel and come out into the house. So, and this is where all the Getty staff used to throw parties. I used oh. to have, I went to a martini party there when I first started and I yeah. was like, I'm never leaving. This is the best place to work. Wow. That's great. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Yeah. And the gardens at the Getty are beautiful. The gardens are gorgeous too. Yes. I mean, I've, I've like, it's just a nice place to be. And like, there aren't the, one of the things about Los Angeles that bums me out is I don't feel like there are enough civic spaces. 
that make you no, feel you're right with like lots of human traffic and that yeah. make you feel like a sense of connectivity the way yes. that like if you're in central park or you're in like bryant park or totally. you know the other cities that are maybe smaller in terms of landmass and then also maybe organized a little bit more sensibly yes than like griffith park where it's just you go up and then you go down yeah right? <laughs> that's that's about it well that's yeah. why the grove is such a big hit out here i know that's my theory yeah. on it because it's like an outdoor shopping mall that's like kitschy and yeah. cheesy and looks like disneyland yeah but there's there's pedestrian traffic <laughs> People feel like they're in a city. They're like, oh, yeah. You know? I, I do wish it was easier to get to the Getty. Uh, it's you know, you that's part part of his his thing. Richard Myers' thing was that he wanted you to sort of journey to get to the art, right? So you take a tram to, yep. to get up there. Yep. So you have to park, and parking's kind of expensive. So it's you know, it's another one of those Los Angeles things where it's um, and there's this artifice, right? It's been created to be this place. Um, but it has its own sort of sordid history and I mean, Getty himself, but also Richard Meyer. I didn't know him. I keep wanting to call him Richard, but we're not buddies, but he, and, um, I can't remember his name, Robert Irwin. Is that who made the gardens? Anyways, they hated each other. Oh, really? Oh yeah. They were like, came to blows on the site quite frequently. In fact that no pool parties for them. No, (laughs) I'm telling you all the dirt about the Getty now, Good, yeah, please. You know, the, um, the fountain that runs, um, from the top. Uh, of like the, when you first come out, there's this fountain and it sort of flows from the very top level down into the garden. Well, Meyer was the one that designed that fountain. And um, Irwin, who designed the garden, was like, I don't want that fountain running into my garden. I'm, I'm doing the garden. He's supposed to be doing the building. And Richard Meyer, I think there's sort of, I'm paraphrasing here, but at some point he referred to that fountain as him peeing on Irwin's garden. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, remember that on your visit to the Getty. <laughs> That's me doing my, my tour guide. <laughs> I probably got there, you know, Irwin's name wrong. It might not even be who, who it was. But what, are you, uh, what were you doing there? I was a library assistant in okay. special collections at the Getty Research Institute. All right. So what does that mean? Just like shelving books or? No, it means so the Getty Research Institute um, has its own special collections outside of the museum. So it's where researchers from around the world come and um, they look into, you know, whatever it is their speciality is. They come there and they look at, we did, I mean, we have everything from Richard Meyer's notes and his blueprints and stuff to, um, gosh, we had Kirkner's uh, sketchbooks there. You know, I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of material there. There's, I think, four floors, and one of them is entire vaults. It's seven different vaults. One's a frozen vault. So there's all kinds of stuff. A frozen vault, mm-hmm. like below. It's it's, it's like mm-hmm. a it's like a freezer. Yeah. So anything that is, um, you know, perishable or all right, um, film stuff like that. This is a sandwich that. You had to put on parkas to get in there. Too. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, it was really fun. Wow. It was a good time. So, but, and I was reading uh, about you and uh, you were talking about Man Ray. Yes. And like his work. So why don't you talk about uh, that? Because I think that's a fascinating story with re- regard to your decision to jump into writing this book. Full time. Yeah. So I, I got the job at the Getty right out of my undergraduate degree. Um, and I thought this is the place where I want to be forever. I'm going to retire here. Uh, the people were wonderful. The pay wasn't great, but I was like, whatever, this place makes up for it. I'm around beautiful things and I'm in a beautiful place. And I think probably like maybe two years in, I started feeling just the, the reality of, of the place, which is just, you know, the grind, you know, the commute driving up the 405. Oh boy. Yeah. Um, it was 2008. So there was layoffs, which was hard. Um, and that meant, you know, no one was going to be able to take any time off and everything sort of, we really just felt the crunch 
of of the um, just work. And I started feeling like maybe I wouldn't be able to write while I was working there. But I thought I'm going to try anyway. So I was taking. So, so you wanted to write? Yes, while I was there. In college, were you thinking of it? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes, yeah. I was taking writing classes at UCLA. So um, while I was working at the Getty, I thought I will take some writing classes at UCLA Extension. Uh, the whole point of the Getty was it's a place that could inspire me and support me while I worked on short stories or wrote a book. But because it became a place that was so fraught, I guess, um, that it started taking a toll on on me and my imagination. But even then, I still thought, it's okay. I can make this work. It's just a dark time for everybody. Um, I'll work through this. And then one day... Little did you know that 2017 I know, was coming. It was coming, right? I know. Now I look back at 2008, and I'm like, oh, those were the days. But... The halcyon days of the Great Recession. <laughs> so sad. Yeah. Um, so... One day, um, Man Ray, um, a lot of people don't know this, but he spent time here in Los Angeles uh, during World War II. Uh, he lived in Hollywood. And we have what is known at the Getty as the Hollywood Album. And it is a collection of all of his letters to his sister and different ephemera, his research and stuff. And I was assigned to rehouse it, which basically means that um, archiving some things, it means you have to put it in archival paper and make sure that it's going to withstand the next you know, 50 years of being used. So while I was rehousing it, I was reading everything that I was putting into Mylar. And, uh, can I stop you there? When you're putting in it, like you're archiving something, you're preserving it for the future. What is that process? It's really kind of interesting, actually. So you have to, um, I'm still doing this as a, as a career also, along with writing. Um, the whole idea is that an artist has his artwork, right? But then there's all of his life's work, which is just his day-to-day um, emails, um, writings, journal entries, bills. Um, and we put it basically in a series of, um, we put it in order for researchers to look at. So there, it goes into boxes. Those are numbered. Then it goes into folders. That's all sort of like level, you know, different levels of sorting it. But what's the mylar? What's the mylar it? is um, an archival plastic and so pocket. It's like a pocket and you slide the mm-hmm. paper in there and just so that it can be like, doesn't... Yeah, no one can ever take it out of there unless oh, okay. it's, it's being digitized or something. But yeah, it's just something so, you know, your f- fingers aren't touching it. It can't get ripped or anything like that. Okay. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it sounds so boring, but it's actually kind of interesting. Yeah. So that's all I was doing with, with his work. Um, but I was doing it slowly so I could read everything because the first, like within the first couple pages, I saw him writing a letter to a sister that said, I hate photography. <laughs> that surprised me. Yeah. Cause that's what I mean. That's, that's what you know him for. Right. You know, yeah. these great photographs, but yeah. you hated it. It blew my mind. I was like, what? So I photocopied it immediately before I put it in mylar and it could never be photocopied. Right. Um, and I just put it in, on my desk cause I had to sit with it for a while. I just thought, what does this mean? Like man, Ray hates photography. Um, and so I started reading the entire, um, archive, the, his, the Hollywood album archive as I was going through it. And he was very adamant that he hated photography and he was only doing it to make a living. So what he really wanted to do was paint. I was, I thought you were going to say direct. But. No, <laughs> right. That's why I came to Hollywood. No, you wanted to paint. Yeah. And, it, um, and I, you know, to this day, I haven't been able to find 
a reproduction of one of his paintings. So I think maybe I Googled it once and I, they're not that memorable or that good. Okay. Disappointing. So uh, this, but this brings up complicated feelings in me because I'm one of these people who doesn't have necessarily, necessarily like an ultra stark creative identity, like w internally. Yeah. Like I, like I thought like at, at times I've been like, I'm a writer <laughs> and then I'm like, but I've mostly podcast and like, I like this, like I love yeah. having these conversations and then other times I'm like, I really like, you know, I like, uh, I don't know, but see, politics or reading nonfiction. Even yeah. though I'm like, I'm not reading enough fiction and I get, I can get confused about it. And so I guess what I'm driving at is that I wonder if he ever made peace with it or maybe it's the case that like he thought he wanted to paint, but he was really just a fucking great photographer. But see, you're exactly where I was. This is what, this is what, this is what finding this out did to me. I just went into like, you know, I was spiraling out. I was like, what does any of this mean? You know, I was the same way, but I'm, I'm working here and this is what I do full time. And yes, this is my life, but also I'm, I'm also trying to be a writer too. What does this mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, look at me. I just got like a puppy. I'm like, I need an emotional support animal. <laughs> Bring him out. We need him right now. Just, just to hear the story. But, <laughs> something to cuddle while I try to figure out my life. So he, um, he, while he was here, he tried to exhibit his artwork he, yeah. and he did, he did a couple different shows and it was so sad. You watched him from, you know, he was here for 10 years. So from day one being very excited and hopeful, right? We're on a new coast. He's also thinks California is gorgeous. He buys a car. He's in love with the car. He meets a woman. He's in love he with He kind of likes the woman. Yeah, right. It's, it's the woman's okay, it's but the, the car. It's funny enough, the car comes up way more than she does. Really? Yeah. Oh, but, it's, um, it's very California. Like, <laughs> right? You know. He does a lot of um, road trips um, up north. Um, and, and he's really blown away by Hollywood, too. He thinks he goes to this one what, bar. What year is this? Like, what this time period? This is like 19... Well, it's World War II, so 1940... I don't know. So that's a good time to be here. Yeah. At least in my brain. Right? Well, yeah, yeah. Not like super overpopulated, but like kind of golden age. And then post-war, like right? that's like the height of the American empire. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And he's... And he's... You can definitely feel that here, right? Um, but he's not getting... He's not getting any ground in, in selling his artwork. He at one point writes... Um, if New York is 40 years behind Europe, Los Angeles is 40 years behind New York. Like nobody's willing to pay him for the work that he's, he's showing. And he gets very discouraged. And it's really sad watching him go through this because by the end of it, he decides to pack up and go back to Europe. And he doesn't like explicitly say, I failed as a painter. But then later I was reading his sort of like essays that he's written um, and he's saying how he has always thought of himself as a photographer. <laughs> that was always going to be his medium. And I'm like, I know better, dude. Yeah, you can't, you can run, but you can't hide, man, right? <laughs> but you know what? But what it says to me is that like, maybe some people have just this very, very, very clear sense of who they are, but identity is slippery. Like one sense of oneself, one sense of other people. Like, you know, these things are not fixed. Totally, totally. And, and I think part of it too is, what was his life's work, which was photography, right? That's what he, he did to make a living and he was good at it. And that's what we know him for. And that's really what stuck, like hit me hard from what I learned from it was that if I continued working at the Getty full time, 50 hours a week, not having time for anything else, that was going to be my life's work. I was going to archive things beautifully. That's what I was going to be remembered for. And so I had to, um, throw on the towel and leave. And then what'd you do? Moved out of my apartment because I had no money. <laughs> okay. And so now you're homeless. And <laughs> so then I was, I was bouncing around with my husband. Um, and I 
took out some more loans to go to graduate school uh-huh. um, at UCR. Uh, Palm Desert and Todd Goldberg. Working. Yes, yes, okay, yes. Okay. He, I've had him in here. Yeah, he's great. He's hilarious. He's isn't a, he? Everyone says, yeah. I mean, <laughs> like for for novelists and like you know like MFA directors, like they, they're rarely like that funny. Right. He's yeah. a very. He's human. one of the good Todds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of the good Brads, and Todd, you are one of the good Todds. Yes. We um, were in a rare fraternity of men. And I had. I, it was great. I started working part time at the last bookstore. Okay. Doing events. And that's a cool bookstore for people who are isn't not from great? Los Angeles. It's downtown. It's huge, mm-hmm. like square footage wise. Yes, it's huge. I think it's. I think well, it's definitely the biggest used and new bookstore in Southern California. Okay. Um, and what's neat about it is that he, that Josh uh, Spencer, who joined forces with a group of artists to sort of create the look of it. Right there's a book tunnel. Um, there's still there's artist studios upstairs that you can go and look at their work. It's a very sort of eclectic. Yeah. Place. It's funky. Right. Yeah. It's really cool. There's nothing else like it out here. Um, and I had a lot of fun there too. But uh, the graduate program was great. I started writing. As soon as I left the Getty, actually, I wrote the first draft of Catalina. How, how quickly? Um, probably two months. No but shit. It was, but it was a novella. It was like 60 pages long. Okay. And I was like, maybe I, this is garbage. I don't know. But as soon as I started that program, I let um, Mary Otis see it. And she thought, oh, you should keep going. And I was like, okay. Okay. So That's I all you need that sometimes. My entire, my entire uh, UCR career. That's what I did. What, uh, what is your routine? Um, when I'm working, my routine is I usually will have a playlist that I associate with the world that the book's taking place in. So okay. um, Catalina had one song in particular that I listened to every single time I sat down to write, just to sort of get myself prepared and get into the atmosphere in the world. Um, and I looked at it when uh, the book published, and I had listened to it like 674 times. Interesting. Yeah. No, but that, 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 I did the same, same, a similar thing with my novel, where I just listened to the same songs over and over yes, and over and over right? again, just as a way to re-enter the mood. Definitely. I think it works. It's sort of like, it's a nice way to trick your brain, mm-hmm. right? To get you right back in there. It's sort of like training it. I don't listen to those songs outside of working on the book. It's explicitly for that world. Are there, are there, is there any music about Catalina or was it just stuff that for you evoked emotion? Evoked, yeah, okay. evoked the emotion. But there's yeah. not like a song called Catalina. No, 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 okay. no, no, nothing like that. No, it was all to evoke emotion and atmosphere, okay. which was fun because, uh, well, fun for me because the book is all, you know, there's lots of drugs and alcohol and sex and it's, it's a fun book to write. But, you know, for my husband, he'd come home and I'm like smoking cigarettes outside and he's like, you don't smoke. What's happening? You know, <laughs> you're like, I'm in character. Leave me alone. <laughs> I'm method writing right now. You, know? <laughs> you really did. You started smoking just to get into the book. Uh, if I was having like a, you know, if I'm writing a, a specific scene that's um, very atmospheric and emotional, sometimes, yeah, I'll have gone and bought a cigarette, like a pack of cigarettes and I'm having a martini. Were you ever a smoker? Or this... Yes. When I was younger, I okay, was. So okay. it's not completely out of character. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So you had some experience. Yes. I've had some, I'm not like learning which end to light or something <laughs> like that. No. <laughs> um, that's cool. And then, uh, drugs and stuff. Like, did you have crazy periods in your life where you did a lot of drugs to inform those scenes? Yeah. I mean, not, I wasn't doing them when I was, you know, a teenager and thinking like, um, I'm doing these because later I'm going to write a book about this. Field research. It's field research, mom. I promise. I'm telling you right now at 14, I know I'm going to be a writer in 10 years. So like, you think I'm a fuck up. Uh, This is all part of my education. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I mean, every, I think every drug that's in that book, I've, 
I've dabbled in. Yeah. Is, the, is that the gentlemanly way to say that it? That is, or gentlewomanly. <laughs> Gentlewoman. <laughs> uh, but did you have, like, uh, you know, in terms of uh, your creative sensibility or, like, your sense of self, like, how do you rate drug experiences? Like, I ask people on this show about this all the time. It's, like, one of the, these fixations of mine. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to ask you. Like, yeah. the, like, in terms of forming who you are, um, your decision to be a creative person and to live your life creatively... Um, I guess the kinds of creative choices that you make in your work, just all the decisions that go into like forming a person, an adult person. Do you think that it could have happened independent of those experiences? Like how closely related Mm -hmm. to them are you? That's a really good question. I think, you know, there's a lot of different experiences that have probably formed who I am and I'll be writing books about them till I die. But I think, um, the drugs and the alcohol probably make up at least a small percentage, right? I mean, they have to. Um, I come from a family that partakes in drugs and alcohol. So well, is it bohemian? Like bohemian, certain... I guess, is sort of the, the, a, a word. I guess if we still use that word. I use it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, um, yeah I guess it's sort of bohemian lifestyle. Although I, I will say that there's always a danger of going overboard, right? I've always, I know people who... Um, there's dabbling and then there's drug addiction Sure, right? yeah. and there's alcoholism of course. and it's a, it's a dangerous, uh, dangerous line. And I've, I think in my youth I've crossed over. So I know my limits now as an adult. Um, I, you know, I know which liquors not to mix and right. I know which drugs to stay away from and yeah. what parties not to go to and stuff like that. And they do inform my work mostly as a way of, um, sort of like a Bildung Roman sort of way, right? Like I traveled that road to get to where I am today. So it ref- it's reflected in Catalina. Um, uh, but Plus it's I just fun to write about that It stuff. is fun to write about, especially because Catalina is the first person. So whenever Elsa takes drugs, it's fun. It's just fun to, I know what it's like, you know. Well, you know, this makes me think of Los, because, you know, to uh, incorporating everything that we've been talking about or a lot of what we've been talking about is... Uh, you know, Los Angeles as a place where there is this kind of subterranean or subsurface darkness as this place that presents, uh, or at least so often presents so beautifully, but you know, there's a lot of pain underneath. And then there's also, you know, it's also associated with, uh, plenty of drug use and oh, yeah. debauchery. Oh yeah. But at the same time, like Los Angeles is not like New York, like everywhere, like their bars close at two. <laughs> You know, like I, I, it's not a place. I mean, like, and it's hard to you have it to drive around. It is a Puritan around. sort of place, also. Right? It's weird. It it's is, it's yeah. not like Chicago where people are out like boozing and like they yeah. are. You know, you get a slice on the way home at four a.m. Like no, no, no. Los Angeles, it's sort of like, do you want to go to this like apartment party and then you like Uber home at one and you know it's not. Yes. I guess there. Are, I mean, maybe, maybe I just didn't go to the right parties. No, but... no, no. I was thinking of the right word for it. Functional. We're we're all like. I feel like everyone in Los Angeles proper is probably very functional partiers and people and they you know you still exercise you get you get your green juice Actually, yeah i think um a couple nights ago i went to muso and frank's had some martinis and the next morning i was out hiking in the morning and i was like do i taste gin and then i was like oh yeah no this is this is very southern california (laughs) right right? or los angeles right you gotta have it all at all <laughs> see but i also because i can get into conversations where i start to defend vanity as like something that is not necessarily all negative like mm-hmm. i feel like vanity can be have sort of a saving quality 
Um, and it can be tied at its best to a form of self-respect. Like it is good to take care of yourself. Yeah. Yes. And like yes. people like who are like, Oh, you know, it's just so vain. If you're like, you know, eating good food or drinking a juice or something, it's like, Hey, you know, like, I'm living life. I'm trying not to die. <laughs> you know, Well, and at this point I feel, you know, back to the tire fire. Like we have so few things right now. They like, give you a sense of control. This give you a sense of control. Also, this goes back to what we're talking about beauty and living in its place. I yeah. think a lot of times people here drink to the extent that they drink or dabble in drugs because they're under pressure 72 hours out of, out of the week, right? Actually, all the time we feel the pressure here to be not just perfect, but to live the fantasy, to make our dreams come true, right? Like if not here, where? Where right. else do dreams come true if not Los Angeles? I don't know. I mean, that's what this place is, is supposed to, think to it's be. Like, I'm starting to think it's like Vancouver or uh, <laughs> it w- might be Wellington. But that, that, you know, that's the reason why when we have, I have friends come here and then they come to Hollywood and they get that disappointed look on their face. I'm like, yes, you thought your dreams would come, you know, they would come true if you came here, but it's just like any other place. Right. And, uh, and how much of a role do you think luck plays in life? Cause you like, well, there's all these stories. Some of them are apocryphal. Some of them are actually true, but you hear them a lot. Yeah. They've become part of the mythology of this place, particularly as it, you know, as it pertains to like entertainment culture Yeah. where it's like, you know, uh, was it Rita Hayworth or who was the actress who was at Schwab's drugstore and like got discovered or, uh, oh God, probably like 50% of them. Right? Yeah. But I mean, it was, but I mean like there's a famous one and I don't think it was Rita Hayworth. It wasn't Marilyn Monroe, right? Wasn't she sort of discovered too? I, they, I mean, but it's always like happenstance. Like Charlize Theron, I know. God, have you seen her in person? She's yeah. another one of those where you're just like, she's like Jesus six feet tall. Christ. Yeah. I know. I've always, I've always been like, well, I'm six feet tall and just broad. And then I saw her and I was like, we have the same body type. Damn it. You're just beautiful. <laughs> she, we don't, don't sell yourself short. <laughs> But she is, you know, she's stunning. But also, like, I find her sort of intimidating. Like, you don't fuck with her. No, God, no. Like, like not because of anything she says or does, like, in when you're in her presence, but just, like, that's the vibe. It's like, I'm, she could kill me. <laughs> I, I saw her and I was like, would you hold me? Yeah, right. For you, it's <laughs> a guess. Make me feel little. Yeah. But, uh, no, but she, I want to say the story is that she was at the post office and was, like, having a shit day and, like, you know, or something and, like, was, like, dressing down the person in line or something and there was like an agent there he was like i need to get it you know that's the story wow i've never heard that the rest is history but it's like she went to the post office you know and so i'm always thinking like god like if she doesn't go there that day who knows what happens right yeah but that's the that's part of the magic of this place right that that could happen at any moment you know but and i to answer your question about luck i think it has a lot to do with it i think i do believe in luck i didn't for the longest time um i just thought there was people who tried really hard um, and didn't see results and some people that did. And then I realized, Oh no, that's actually luck. Some yeah. people are just lucky. You know, you've in the right place at the right time. So it's like, yeah, I think, and I think I agree, but I think in terms of the actual work and the way you conduct yourself in life, you kind of have to pretend that it doesn't exist. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can't just sit back and wait, for, hope luck will choose you or something. I just keep I don't going, know. I'm just going to keep going to the post office right? until I somebody mean, finally taps me on the shoulder. I think that's part of the reason why I didn't, lo- I didn't want to believe in luck is because it, get, it basically means we have no control, right? And I think as writers, we want to control everything. That's why we're world building, right? We right. control these characters and, and play God. You tell me there's something out there that's going to <laughs> basically mean I'm going to succeed or not. Um, I don't want to believe that that exists. But now, I, you know, I have a book out there and I realize I have a lot to think because of luck. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about it. So you wrote this book, mm-hmm. you had Mary Otis tell you to keep going. Mm-hmm. You had Todd Goldberg, like crack jokes while you were like neurotically <laughs> <laughs> trying 
try, trying to finish this manuscript <laughs> for comic relief. Yeah. But you're, you know, you have a workshop environment. I'm sure you met other writers and that, that, yes. that's its own kind of like yes. support yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's good, yeah. you know, if nothing else, just to meet other crazy people. Yes. Who are interested in doing this stuff. Yes. That was my MFA experience mostly. <laughs> it was just like, oh, okay. So like there are other people, you don't necessarily meet them. As, well, as writers, we work by ourselves, right? right? So it's nice to, nice and also very stressful to see everybody. I mean, did you, I, mine was a low residency program, so it's hard to not see anybody for three months and then you're all living together for two weeks. Yeah. Know? That's, that's a little intense. In the desert. In the desert. I mean, in a, in a beautiful hotel, which makes things easier, but also it's, you know, you're, you have to be on for two weeks and I, you know, for three months was not working on. in my underwear, <laughs> you know, so it's just like, doesn't, it's very, it's difficult. It's a, it's a difficult switch. Yeah. Well, but it, you know, it, uh. It gives you some structure mm -hmm. and it also gives you deadlines and mm -hmm. accountability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but then you, you know, like how many drafts did you go through and then talk us through how you went from there to being represented. I'm assuming you're represented mm -hmm. and then finding uh, a home for the book and like, and how did luck factor in? Yeah. So I, um, I probably rewrote that book. Hmm. I would say that the, the MFA program worked really well in giving me permission to, I guess, focus on that book. So I went in with it as a novella, right? It was 60 pages. And I just kept, I was working with Mary Otis, Mark Haskell Smith, um, and Todd. Those were my, the three people I worked with. And they just kept telling me, build this out. Like, why is this person doing this? Focus on these characters. And I really got to know each character, not just the main character, all, all of them. Um, and I just kept writing scenes, right. And sort of was pulling it apart. Um, so I didn't really have like a first draft and probably my last, couple quarters there um and did then, you and so and mm -hmm. uh just so i'm clear like you were writing scenes you didn't mm -hmm. necessarily knew know exactly where they fit into the superstructure mm -hmm. yeah you didn't have some like grand outline well funny enough so i originally wanted to write sort of a retelling of gene reese's good morning midnight okay. which came out almost 100 years ago now and i wanted it so i sort of always knew beginning middle and end but by the way gene reese gene reese yeah hated not uh, hated writing did she no i'm just kidding oh god <laughs> She really just wanted to, uh, you know, needlepoint, but actually that's, that's pretty close. I think she just wanted to be happily married, um, but that just never happened. So she wrote instead. Which... I think, you know, sometimes I think about this, like, uh, like there are certain like writers I feel like, I don't know, I can, as, as a guy who has two kids and like this really crazy family life and all these demands, I'm sometimes like, wow, they're creative people where it's like their art is their children. And like, they get to focus all that human energy into the creation of it. That's a lot of pressure on those kids though. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> you know? Don't listen to this children. No, but I, no, but I think that, uh, they just, as a, as a function of human energy. Yes. You know, my, yeah. my energy is by necessity, uh, more diffuse just because I got all these different things to tend yeah, to. That's good. And it's great. You know, I'm not complaining at all, but I, some, it's hard not to sometimes be like, wow, if I could just channel all of this into those kids or into, into <laughs> if I actually paid attention to my children, imagine what kind of father I could be. Oh, you mean like if you focused all of that into creative work, creative work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'll, you'd be neurotic about that one thing. I mean, that's what happened to me. I put so much pressure on myself to write this book and get it published that if it hadn't happened, I don't know what I would have done. Yeah. Like your identity is like tied to oh, it. Oh, completely. Like, tied I just, to it. I, and still tied to it. And sure. it's, it's difficult having it out there now because 
you know, I wasn't prepared to have my identity tied to a book and have that book be on Goodreads, you know? Yeah. Like, all of a sudden I'm like, well, you're giving me two stars. Yeah. But it's weird. It's a, you know, that's the thing. It's like, there's a big weird emotional hiccup that happens in between like there's acquisition. Yes. There's like the, the ecstasy of creation, especially yes. when it's going well, yeah, yeah. which is really the, that's great. That's the best part. That's the drug, right? And, yeah, but, yeah. And, and also, but I think in hindsight, you look back and like, that was the best part. Yeah, totally. Uh, and then you, you know, then you get the agent and you're like, somebody loves me. And then you get a publisher and it's like, Oh my God. Yeah. And then it's like pub day and the things that, or you get your galleys. You yes, know, there's all these yes, little moments emotionally yeah. where you're watching it be birthed yeah. and then it goes out into the world. And I think sometimes it can be anticlimactic or it can be, uh, confusing. Both of those things yeah. I think are true. Yeah. It's, it, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, it, especially because I, you know, I worked on it for five years before it was actually birthed into the world. Uh-huh. Um, and the last three were a lot of just me waiting and that's a long time to be waiting to birth something. Sure. You know, you just have this one date focused, like hyper focused on that. Did you try to work on your next book while, like during that time? Yes, I did. And, but I wrote one draft and then, you know, my editor was like, let's not work on this until Catalina's out. And I was like, well, then what do I do? So I was, you know, writing essays and stuff like that and trying to keep myself, you know, calm until the book came out. And then the book came out and, and I, and it wasn't, wasn't that it was anticlimactic because I got on that a lot of nice press and stuff. It just felt not it it wasn't what i thought it was going to be i right, guess right, right. i don't I, know what i thought it was going to be I, you know i think that and it's 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 a hard thing to language you know where you're like what did i think it was going to be and what is this and yeah. there's just a lot tied to it and uh it, it's emotional yes i think that's exactly that's exactly right you put it, a lot yeah. into it to yes. make to make a book and to spend 5 years laboring and to you know Telling yourself, I'm just, if I'm, I'm going to just be as honest as possible, which was why I think a lot of the labels shocked me. Cause, um, not that they were, you know, shocking labels or something like that, noir and stuff like that, but that the, so quickly something I could work on for five years could be whittled down to one box, yeah. you know? And that, that was a little, a little, uh, abrasive, I guess yeah. for me to, to come to terms with. And you just, it's not yours anymore. Yeah. Right. That's another thing, right? I, it's not I always used to liken anymore. it. I mean, you know, not to keep bringing things back to kids, but I always likened it to like sending your kid off to school for the first time and just hoping it doesn't get its ass kicked on the playground. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Be nice. Be nice to me. Wringing your hands at home. <laughs> refreshing. You know, no, that's basically your it. emails to see if the principal's going to email you and let you know, you right. know, yeah, that's Sorry. how it felt your for child like the got... first four weeks. Mm. Just me being like you know, checking my Google alerts, <laughs> what's like, happening now? And saying, is it weird that I have a Google alert set for this, <laughs> but I need to know. Yeah. And so let's talk about luck though. I didn't hear the, the story of how oh, you, the agent and stuff. Yeah. So I, 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 um, I got, I was lucky in that I landed an agent while I was in the program. Mm. Um, Dara Hyde is my agent at Hill Nadell and she is, um, one of the guest faculty that Todd has visit. Got it. Um, and how you see our works is you have, uh, every, I guess, whoever's graduating that senior class, um, Todd will have an agent and an editor read your work. Um, and they'll give you feedback. Uh, that's not how I got my agent. Actually. I had known her before because of my job at the last bookstore. Oh, okay. So do you need me to pause for that? No, no, it's fine. It's Um, just, uh, surveillance, surveillance, (laughs) (laughs) just the eye in the sky. Um, so I, um, knew Dara from working at the last bookstore and I, but I didn't want to send her my manuscript because I thought, you know, I was so green at this point. I thought I don't want to risk my professional position at the last bookstore with this agent 
by giving her my manuscript, right? Like I, that could complicate things with my boss and stuff. So I was sending my manuscript out to all these different agents, people that Mark and Todd had recommended to me and mostly not hearing anything or hearing, you know, no, thank you. I'll be cheering for you from the sideline. <laughs> like that, those, those rejection letters that like the first paragraphs, like this, the voice in this is like, you have an incredible voice and <laughs> That said, that said, I'm sad yes. to report that like, I just don't feel like I'm in just like, fuck. Yes, yeah, yeah. I was really getting my ass handed to me. Um, a lot of those emails uh -huh. too. And it was, I, and because my identity was so wrapped up in this book and I had worked on it so hard for the couple years that I was in grad school that I, and I really felt, you know, Mark and Todd were so excited about it. Um, and a lot of the students were too, that I kind of felt this pressure of wanting to prove to them that they had bed on the right horse, I guess, sort of thing. So I was just feeling a lot of pressure, not to mention I had quit my job and I had, you know, relocated us to Crenshaw at this point and was just like, I want my husband not to divorce me. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a positive. Don't blow so, up your most important relationship. Yeah. You know, um, he's, he supported me through all this. Um, and then Dara and I were talking at a uh, residency and she said, I want, I've heard such great things about your manuscript. Why haven't you sent it to me? And I explained to her that I didn't want to compromise our, our business relationship. And she was like, no, I'm completely capable of rejecting you. Uh, if, if this doesn't work out and we can still work together at the last bookstore. And I was like, Oh, okay. Oh, I wish I would have known. <laughs> How lovely. Yeah. Great. Right. Looking forward to that. Yeah. So I sent it to her. Um, and you know, a few months went by and I sort of forgot about it. And then she reached out and said, let's work on this together, uh -huh. which was great, great. Um, because I wasn't happy with the ending. What happened was during the program, because I got to know the characters, I decided I didn't want the original ending, um, because I sort of fell in love with Elsa and I wanted something nicer to happen to her. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the ending of Jane Reese books are not happy basically. Yeah. So I didn't want that to happen for Elsa. Um, so I was really trying to work around the, the ending that was meant to be, I think. So Dar and I worked together on the book for about a, uh, six months, I think, before we went to submission. That's and like how substantive were the changes mostly focused on the end, I'm, I'm completely focused on the end. Um, I think an agent does it. A lot of the stuff that they do is really get the manuscript in fighting shape. So you don't embarrass yourself. When a good agent. Reads it. Yeah. Good agent. Right. Yeah. Um, and she was really invested in the characters too. So she wanted to have the book feel like the ending was a true product of where the characters started and where, you know, they, end, they should end up. Uh, so we worked on that together. Um, and then we went into submission and that was, oh, it's, it's such a weird world, right? Cause you're working by yourself. You're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. And then there's these moments that are so fast, like submission, just all of a sudden you're in submission. Three weeks go by. The book sold. Yeah, it took three right. weeks. I think so. Yeah. That's About pretty quick. Weeks. Yeah. It was pretty fast. Um, and Daphne and I had done a phone call conversation to see if we would work well together or not. And, um, she liked me. I liked her and I don't know, but we just clicked. The rest is history. Great. I didn't want to say that, but yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> yeah. It That's was very great. exciting. So what did you do when you found out that the book had sold? How did you get that information? How did you get that news? Oh my gosh. I mean, I had... I will, I'll remember it forever. It's so silly to say that, but that is, it's, I mean, I had, I swim at the Rose Bowl Aquatic Center and I walked out, I got into the car. I knew I was in submission. I had been checking my phone probably, you know, every four minutes, refreshing my email, sure. seeing if I got any phone calls from Dara. Um, and I had missed a phone call and see, this I is know, what right? <laughs> if the good news comes by phone, bad news comes by email. Yeah, totally. They don't want to, they don't want to call you and be like, yeah, I'm, so I'm so sorry. <laughs> we're, we're going to, yeah. And yeah. I knew that, you know, Dara was, um, 
uh, I, she that she really wanted that she had some things in the works. She, we had talked earlier in the week, and different people were interested. So she was going to try to close out by the end of the week. So she said, "Call me back. Um, I have some news." So I called her back, and I sat in the in the parking lot. Um, and her husband answered the phone. It was her birthday. And she, when she came onto the phone, she said, you gave me the best birthday present ever. And I was like, what is it? What is it? What is it? What did I get you? <laughs> and she said a two book, um, deal, an, uh, an advanced, yeah. Two book deal. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's a, that's a show of faith. Yeah. I think I started crying. I, I was going to say, I remember starting to cry. <laughs> like how, like what kind of tears are we talking? Like, like oh. full body sobs or just like a couple of trickle? Um, I tried to act really professional and uh-huh. uh, on the phone call with her and, um, I sort of blacked out, I think, because I don't remember the rest of the phone call. And then I hung up and then I put on some music, punched out in the car. Everyone I'm sure walking by was like, what is going on in that car right now? <laughs> and then I called my husband and ugly cried on the phone. That's fantastic. Yeah, I love those wonderful. stories. Those it are... was really wonderful. Yeah. And then for the rest of the day, I think I got home and I just kept, I kept listening to music and sliding around on the floor in my socks, you know, dancing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't... It was have... like Tom Cruise in Risky Business, <laughs> yeah, singing basically. into a trophy, essentially. Yes, yes, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Wow. It was, it was... Music it was is big for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially for, you know, special moments. You oh, know? Yeah. Because now whenever I listen to those songs that I had on that day... I I'm searching my mind, trying to think of what song to play at the end of this interview. I, mean, <laughs> I want to mark this moment for you. I know it's <laughs> better. I know it's a big deal. Uh, uh, but it's great because now, you know, I get to focus on a second book now, which is fun. I, well, I was just going to ask you, what's going on with it? Do we, do we have any hints? Yes. Well, it's funny because, you know, I, you know, I said I was a method writer. And if I ever had the funds to do a book somewhere fancier than Catalina, I would do that. So my second book, after doing some prolonged research around the globe. No. <laughs> <laughs> Where do I want to go? It's just been, <laughs> the, um, the novel is called Boondoggle. <laughs> My year abroad. No, um, I did. Um, I decided the second book is going to take place in Rome and Puglia. Oh. So I've gone there twice. Oh, good for you. Thank you. Yeah. And good trips. Yeah, great. Tri- well, the first time I first thought the book would t- take place in Oxford, England, and then I thought maybe Portugal. So I checked those places out first and they didn't work. Um, and then I went to Rome and I thought, actually, this could really work, but I went in October. Okay. So what's it about? Can we, can we, can you give us any mm, hints? Uh, yes. I'll tell you it's about, um, an older woman, um, who's going through perimenopause. Hence why I wanted it to be somewhere very hot and, um, like hot flashes Rome. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, I don't know if I want to give it away. No, I'll tell you. Um, I mean, my editor hasn't even told me if she likes this, so this could end up completely out. But That's right fine. now, That's what fine. I want it to be about is an older woman who seduces a younger boy, an Italian boy. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm ready. <laughs> it sounds fun, right? Sounds fantastic. It'll be just as fun and devastating as Catalina. Okay. Good. <laughs> I promise. You're going to have to fix the end. Less drugs, though. Yeah. <laughs> less yeah. drugs? Less, well, you never know. Less drugs, yeah. Peri- right now. Perimenopause. A uh, lot of Negronis happening in it right now. That's good. That's good. Um, and you said earlier, you know, uh, oh, you know, you know what else I want to ask you before I forget is, uh, your tattoo. Whenever I have writers in the show who have visible tattoos, I'm always like, what's the story? No. So what do you have a tattoo on like the underside of your wrist? And it Mm -hmm. says, what does it say? It says Vaja in Slovak. It means twin sister. I'm a, I have a twin sister. Oh, you do? Yes. She has one. We're fraternal. So hers is on the other arm going the other direction. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I asked. Yeah. We're so, complete opposites. She's like a uh, foot shorter than me and a scientist. 
My sister, uh, my little sister, just had fraternal twin girls. Oh, really? They're going to turn. They're going to turn a year old in June. Born at Cedar Sinai? No, they're oh, okay. they're in uh, the Midwest. I was like, that would have been very <laughs> cool. <laughs> We're going to get them tattooed tomorrow, <laughs> just in keeping. But uh, and so you have one sister. I have also a little sister and a little brother. Oh, you do? Yeah. Four kids. Yes. We're in a bohemian Hollywood family. In a bohemian, yep, yeah. Just living all over the... <laughs> and, and you said, uh, you know, you have enough material to write about for the rest of your life. Were you speaking generally in the way that writers talk? Or like, did you, do you really have like big events that you're going to be mining? You I think? mean, yes. I think, I think what I will probably be mining my entire career will be um, womanhood, probably, which I think is a very deep well. Um, I'm going to be mining that too, yeah. just so you know. <laughs> I think we do a lot of that. You know, identity is a, is a big one too. Yeah. Um, I love writing about Los Angeles. So even though this next book takes place in Rome, my character's from Hollywood and she's from a Hollywood family. Uh-huh. Um, and people like reading about that stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, it's mythology. I mean, like it's a, it, it travels. Yeah. And it's all about identity here. Right. And that's a universal thing, you know? So, and I already have a sort of idea for a third and a fourth book. Oh. I know. Okay. I'm well, just... I'm not going to make you go over that. I'll let you have some privacy. <laughs> no, they're not ready to be talked about yet. They're back there. <laughs> what is the ending of your fourth book? No, I don't know. I just start crying. Bring the puppy back. Yeah, yeah. we're going to get the puppy out for some emotional support. I think we've done a, you <laughs> enough feel, damage. We've done enough damage. She's traumatized. Like it sounds like she's having fun, but I can tell you, there's just a haunted. There's a haunted look in her eyes. Uh, it's been great to meet you, and, oh, uh, and you uh, I appreciate me. you coming over here to talk to me. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, there you have it. That's Liska Jacobs. Her novel is called Catalina. It is available now from MCD FSG. Catalina by Liska Jacobs. Go get your copy. You can find Liska online. Uh, she's all over the place. She's got a website. It's called uh, LiskaJacobs.com. <laughs> Her website is called LiskaJacobs.com. She's on Tumblr. She's on Facebook. Her Twitter handle is at Liska Jacobs, L-I-S-K-A. And uh, she's got an Instagram. Track her down online. Liska Jacobs Catalina. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. The music at the very top of the show during the uh, Patreon part. That's the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. Check them out when you're down in New Orleans in the French Quarter. I like them. Uh, Don't forget about the app, the Other People app. It's free. It's the best way to listen. Go get the app wherever apps are available. It's free. The Other People app. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support the show, it's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. So, uh, what can I tell you? What can I tell you about Twiggy? She's a little vocal, nothing nothing major. Oh, you know what I forgot to, to mention is that she, uh, she arrived in our home with uh, some sort of gastrointestinal parasite, which I was not aware of, and which is not entirely uncommon for uh, large rescue litters from, uh, you know, a disadvantaged situation or a rough situation. So uh, I took her out at, you know, pre in the pre-dawn hours of Sunday morning. So we, we bring the dog home on Saturday afternoon, early, early Sunday morning. I'm in the backyard with her. It's still dark outside. And, uh, you know, I'm putting her in the lawn so she can go to the bathroom and she poops. And I realized when I picked her up that uh, there was something wrong with her... Uh, her backside she had a prolapse situation i had to go to the vet at like 7 a.m i'm not gonna get into the nitty-gritty details but basically it was related to this parasite she's on medication now there have been no uh subsequent incidences of uh prolapse do you know what a prolapse is maybe look that up <laughs>